may be seated. Well, I once knew a guy who was trying, who wanted to cook a good brisket. And so this is a picture of a big green egg. My kids like to call it a big avocado, and that's kind of more what it looks like. But uh, so this is a smoker used to cook brisket and cook hamburgers and all that types of stuff. But I once heard about this guy. He, he wanted to cook a really good brisket. And this guy, he, he had heard from other people, you know, he, he knew that he was supposed to cook at a low temperature for a really long time, especially if you want to get a nice, kind of tender, juicy brisket. But this guy was also really busy. He had a lot of stuff going on this day. You know, he had to take his kid to practice. He had to pick up the dry cleaning. He had to take the dog to the vet. He had to go to Home Depot and pick up parts for the sprinkler system that had broke. He had to pick up air filters and replace those. He had a lot of things to do that day. So he thought, you know, I don't have 12 hours to sit here and watch this thing. So surely all you have to do is increase the temperature and it'll cut your time, it'll cook faster. So he cooked his brisket over a roaring, flaming hot fire for 30 minutes. And after 30 minutes, he opened it up and the outside looked charred. He's like, okay, looks kind of done. So he took it off, he went to cut into it, but the outside was hard as a brick. And he actually got to the inside, and it was raw as could be. It didn't, it didn't cook through at all. It was, it was a waste. It was worthless. All right, so the next weekend, he says, I'm, I'm going to get this down. I'm going to try again. And he didn't want to make the same mistake twice and overcook uh, the outside. So he's like, I'm going to lower the temperature. I'm going to lower it way down. I don't want to overcook it. So, you know, and he decided, okay, I'm going to commit. I'm going to leave it longer, and I'm going to really lower the temperature down. So he lowered the temperature to about 100 degrees, which... Katy, Texas, that's, you know, about the outside temperature, maybe a degree or two warmer. And he left it there all day. And after 12 hours, he's like, okay, surely that's cooked enough. Opens the lid, thing's still raw. I mean, it's, it's kind of warm, but it's, it's not cooked at all. It's still raw. It's, it, it, too, was a waste. It was worthless. So finally, he thought, all right, third time's a charm. I got, I got to do something else about this. I'm going to call my neighbor, because I know my neighbor knows how to cook a really good brisket. I've been smelling, you know, his briskets for the past year. I'm going I'm to just call him up, see if he'll come help me out. And I'm going to seriously follow the instructions this time, the recipe. So called his neighbor. His neighbor came over, and he walked him through each step. Here's how, here's how you bring your, your big avocado up to temperature, and you want to hold it steady. This is what you need to do. And so he did. And then he's like, okay, we're going to cook it for about 12 hours. 12 hours is a long time, right? And during this 12 hours, you know, this man and his neighbor really kind of got to know each other a little better. You know, it started with sports. You know, what teams do you like? What do you like to watch? Things like that. You know, how, how are the Astros going to do this year? In my case, the Rangers. We know how they're doing. They're doing bad. <laughs> and, you know, they, they even started playing some yard games together some cornhole and, you know, I don't know, other things we play in the yard, playing catch with football. But again, 12 hours, it's a long time. And so after a while, they really started to kind of talk about some life stuff, family. You know, what, what, what brought you into your current career? You know, what was your interest in, in college? And then that kind of turned into sharing about how the guy was kind of currently struggling with his job. And it was causing him stress, and he was discouraged. And he also shared to his neighbor about how his childhood friend had died suddenly, and he was really kind of having trouble coping with that loss. They really
got to know each other on this deeper level, just by kind of spending some time with one another. So after 12 hours of cooking this brisket, not only was their friendship, you know, closer with one another, but the brisket looked and smelled amazing. They took it off, went to slice it open. I mean, just like buttery smooth, just tasted amazing. They, you know what? Let's go tell our neighbors. Like, let's just, this is way too much brisket for the two of us. Let's, let's bring in the neighbors. Let's have, let everyone come and taste and see how good this is. So they did. And that's the end of my sermon. Bev, will you play our <laughs> offertory? <laughs> That kind of feel weird to you? I mean, some of you might be doing like two-minute sermon about brisket. All right, let's get out of here. I'm kind of hungry. Well, I, I hope that's not you know genuinely where your heart's at right now. Uh, we might have to have a talk if it is. But hopefully, some of you might come up to me afterward and just say, Tyler, what 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 was that about? You didn't mention Jesus, the Bible, anything. What what kind of lesson was that? Well, as the radio icon Paul Harvey used to say, and now the rest of the story. I can't do impersonations. That's as good a Paul Harvey as I could do. Well, what if I were to tell you that, you know, this little story was a little made-up parable of my own? And in this parable, as silly as it might sound, the brisket in the story represents one's spiritual life as we engage in the study of God's word. So there's three scenarios. The first scenario is the man on his own cooking the brisket too hot and too short. This is like a person who commits to reading the Bible. He's like, I'm going to jump in. I've got this commentary. I'm going to start with the book of Philippians. It's only four chapters. I can get through that. And he jumps in and takes a chapter a day. And so for four days, he is in it. He is doing it. But then after that, he gets too consumed by all the busyness and all the things he has to do, and so he stops. In the second scenario, it's still the man trying to cook on his own, but he's cooking the brisket too cool, where it's actually not really doing anything much at all. This might be like the person who doesn't really get into the Word of God. Maybe they get, you know, their their dose of Christianity through Facebook verses or verses they see on Facebook or maybe read a, the occasional Christian-themed book, but they never really engage with the depth and the breadth of Scripture and how it really relates to their life. Well, a third scenario is the man joining with his neighbor, with someone else, to cook the brisket the right way for, for the duration. This is like the person who seeks out a shared experience of studying the Bible consistently with others, building friendships, sharing life together, sharing you know, life stories and life joys and life difficulties, growing spiritually through a steady, continuous engagement with the scriptures, and then even allowing others to taste and see that God is good. Well, I wanted to try to, you know, use this story, this brisket story, I don't know what to call it, 
to kind of disorient us a little bit this morning as an introduction to a lesson today on Jesus's use of parables. Jesus taught many things in the form of parables. And today we're going to look at the parable Jesus taught, as I told the kids, the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower occurs in three of the four gospel accounts. It occurs in Matthew, which we'll look at today, Mark, and Luke. And interestingly, John has no parable um, accounts. It's also worth noting, and this is a pretty important point, that the parable of the sower is the first parable that Jesus taught. Jesus didn't start his ministry right off the bat teaching in, in parables. There was actually a point in his ministry that prompted him to begin teaching in parables. And we'll get to this point in just a bit. But first, let's consider what is a parable? Well, the word parable actually comes from the Greek, and it's a compound word. It's made up of, of two Greek words. And the first word is para, para. And the second word is balo. Well, para, para, however you want to say it, means to go alongside something else. So you might think of, uh, okay, I'm gonna throw, I'm gonna make you think a little bit of math here. So high school students, what is a word in math that kind of sounds like parable? Uh, I see Kristen Malley, parabola, right? Parabola, parabola. Well, if you think about what is, what is the shape of a parabola? It's kind of a, kind of a U shape and it goes, and the two sides, go alongside one another. You might think of parallel lines. There are two lines that go alongside one another, parallel. In the professional world, there's paralegals, people who work alongside attorneys. Or kind of in a ministry context, a lot of times we'll use the word paraministry. You know, it's a ministry or an organization that kind of runs alongside the church. It's not necessarily the church's ministry, but it kind of runs alongside. Well, the word ballo, you'll be able to remember this because what do you throw? A ballo. So ballo is a, is a verb in Greek meaning to throw. And so putting it together, a parable is something that is thrown alongside something else. And in the Bible, Jesus uses them, or as Jesus uses them, a parable is a relatable illustration that communicates a deeper fundamental and spiritual truth. Parable is a relatable illustration that communicates a deeper fundamental and spiritual truth. Well, as we get to our actual scripture reading this morning, let us go to God in prayer. Lord, simply put, we need you. You are the source of life, the source of truth, and the source of our redemption. Stir within us this morning that we may be inspired by your word that we would treasure it in our hearts and seek to live faithfully to it with our lives. So bless us this morning with a greater and deeper understanding of your grace. Amen. The parable of the sower, Matthew chapter 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got in, into a boat and sat there while the whole crowd stood on the beach. So just kind of paint a little mental picture. Jesus is there, there's these big crowds of people following him, and 
too many of them for him to kind of be there on the land with them to teach them. So he gets out into a boat, kind of goes just a little off, and he uses kind of the, the shore of the land as the, his own little amphitheater. So that's kind of where, where he's going, and he sits down in the boat to, to begin to, to teach. Verse 3, And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. This has long been one of my, my favorite parables. Because I remember when I was little, I, I can remember kind of vividly the first time that, that I heard it. Partly because the illustration of it just makes so much sense. You know, just like in the, in the children's moments, they had no problem, you know, figuring out which type of environment should they plant their seed. That's pretty obvious information. But I also remember being so intrigued by not only its simplicity, but also the depth of its meaning and application for our lives. So I hope I can do it justice this morning. Now picture yourself, if you were on that shore listening to Jesus, and all that we heard was this side of the parable, we would probably either, you know, take it at surface level and just think, okay, Jesus, thanks for the farming lesson. It's not really what I came here for. That's pretty obvious information. Like, I think there'd be a sense of, what was that about? Kind of like my, my parable earlier. I just kind of told you about brisket. But what, what was that about? Well, the parable's not really about farming, right? And as we said earlier, a parable is a relatable illustration that communicates a deeper fundamental and spiritual truth. So what is most important about the parable is the spiritual truth behind the words. Before getting into that meaning, you know, the, the meaning behind the words, I mentioned how Jesus had not used parables before this point. This was his first parable. And this shift was, you could tell, it was kind of puzzling to his disciples. And we know this from the very next verse. In verse 10, it says, then the disciples came and asked him, why do you speak in parables? It's a really good question. I mean, why didn't he just continue to teach like he had with the Sermon on the Mount and, and just kind of laying it out there? Why did he now begin to use parables? Well, this question did not go unanswered. Jesus answered their question. I'm going to pick up again with verse 10. Then the disciples came and asked him, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus answered, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive, and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. With them, indeed, is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that says, You will indeed listen, but never understand. You will indeed look, but never perceive. 
For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard from hearing, and they have shut their eyes, so that they might look not, or not look with their eyes, and listen with their ears, and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is kind of a hard passage, especially to take all at, all at once. Jesus is, is doing a number of things here. But let's start with just verse 13, because verse 13 is probably the most clear and concise statement for why Jesus begins to use parables. He says, the reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive, and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. Is that kind of a parable in itself? Like, what does that mean? Well, regarding his answer, first, it's important to know that Jesus is quoting here from the Old Testament. And the quote is actually alluded to a number of times in the Old Testament in, in different places. And in the full, fuller passage that I read where Jesus quotes from Isaiah, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. And in, the, in Isaiah chapter 6, if you go back there and look, it's a really interesting passage because it describes how Isaiah has this encounter with God's glory in the temple. And God calls him as a prophet to his people to go and to, and to preach. But what God also says is that this message that he is to preach, it's not really going to be well received. It's not going to have a positive effect on the people because their hearts are too closed off. They are unresponsive to God. Their hearts are hardened and they're rebellious to God's truth. Well, this phrase also appears in Jeremiah 5, and I wanted to, and in Ezekiel 12, but I wanted to just look at Jeremiah 5, because uh, he says it this way, declare this in the house of Jacob, proclaim it in Judah, hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart, they have turned aside and gone away. In both of these instances, in, in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, if you look that one up, all of these are mentioned as a sort of judgment against the people for their hard and unrepentant and unresponsive hearts and their rebellious ways. They have eyes. They, they can see. They have the ability to see. And if they really looked around them, they would see the glory and majesty of God on display. But they're spiritually blind. They have ears. They can hear noises. They can hear Isaiah preach. And if they would just listen, if they would really listen, they would know the goodness and the grace and the forgiveness of God. But they chose not to. And if they really sought God... If they really opened their hearts to God, they would understand and experience the covenant love of God. But they didn't. They did what they saw fit to do. They pursued their own ways. They sought their own power. Well, fast forward to the New Testament now. Likewise, Jesus here was calling out the rebellious and hard-hearted religious leaders of his day. 
to understand what's happening here in the scene in uh, chapter 13, you kind of have to know what's happened to lead up to this point. So Jesus has been going around, he's, he's been doing his ministry. He's been teaching, he's been performing miracles and healings, and he's been doing this for everyone to see and hear. It, it's, just, it's out there, he's not doing this in secret behind closed doors, he's doing it amidst the public and people to see. But there's this tension that's steadily been rising between Jesus and some of the, the Pharisees. They were there witnessing his healings. But they chose to harden their hearts. And even in one instance in chapter 9 it says, But the Pharisees said, By the ruler of the demons he cast out the demons. They basically called Jesus Satan because he performed this healing that they saw with their own eyes. But they tried to discredit Jesus. They wouldn't open their eyes to what they were actually witnessing. And in chapter 12, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. This chapter 12 is right before uh, the parable of the sower. Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. And instead of being amazed at what had just happened right in front of them, since Jesus had done this on the Sabbath, the Pharisees confronted and criticized Jesus. And the end of, of this scene it ends in verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. The very people, the very ones that should have been the first to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, instead were threatened by him. And they sought to discredit him, to shame him, and then ultimately to destroy him. We see this also play out in John chapter 10, where Jesus, uh, or the Jews gathered around Jesus and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Well, Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. The very people tasked with the responsibility to spiritually shepherd the people of God were the very ones who were blind to the work of God and even the very Son of God. The opportunities for them to see plainly and to hear and to know the truth of the gospel were right in front of them, but they were completely rebellious to it. So back to our question, why did Jesus begin to teach in parables? Well, Jesus teaching or Jesus's teachings of parables from that point on served in a way as a means of sorting those who were true followers of him who had opened their hearts to receive God's grace from those who were hostile to him Jesus never resorted to violence against those who sought to harm him Jesus wanted people to come to a knowledge of the gospel of God but the truth is their hearts had to be open to receive God's truth. Anyone whose heart longed to know more and anyone who truly desired to know Jesus and the gospel had an invitation to do so. And that's really what the whole parable of the sower is all about. It's about this whole scene kind of being summed up. But it's also about the reality in which we should consider for our own hearts. In the parable, the truth of the gospel is represented by the seed. The gospel of God, the truth of God's word is represented by the seed. 
and it's cast out among the thrower. It's not just given to this one and this one. It's cast out. But the variables are the four different soil environments represented. And they represent the various conditions of the human heart. So three of the four environments are ultimately resistant to the truth of the gospel. There are the hearts like the hard path that are too callous to even let the seed of the gospel even begin to take root. There are the hearts like the rocky ground that don't take the time to really ground themselves in God's word and let the roots take hold and strengthen. There are the hearts with the weeds that are too caught up and preoccupied with the busyness and the activities of this world that everything else just simply doesn't make room for the gospel and eventually chokes it out because it couldn't grow. But there are ones whose hearts are like the good soil, which receive the truth of God and allow it to really take root and to grow strong and healthy, and the ones whose lives produce fruit for the kingdom of God and fulfill their purpose. I'll let you read the actual text of it on your own. But here's how the parable of the sower should speak to us. As we read and hear this parable, it should cause us to consider the condition and the reality of our own hearts and lives. It encourages us to ask ourselves, what does the soil of our hearts look like? And if we take an honest evaluation, will we find our hearts to be fertile ground, allowing the seed of the gospel to grow? Because that's what God desires. God desires you to fulfill your purpose and to produce good fruit. We should desire hearts that allow the seed of the gospel to grow and flourish. We ought to allow God to work in our hearts so that we would grow in faith and grow into his will to do his purposes the fruit of our lives ought to reflect God's grace in us. We should desire this for ourselves. For those of us as parents and grandparents, we should desire and encourage this for our spouses, for our kids, for our grandkids. Are we helping them? Are we nurturing them? Are we nurturing their hearts and their lives to allow the gospel to grow and flourish in them? Well, the last note here as I close and I think one of the most important lines of Jesus' parable, this section, is actually this little line that Jesus says right after actually telling the parable. It's verse 9, which says, Whoever has ears, let them hear. Whoever has ears, let them hear. It almost seems unnecessary. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Well, obviously, you know, most of we have ears, we, we hear. What's, why even mention that? We do this naturally already. But this statement isn't so much about hearing with our ears. It's about hearing with our hearts. It's an invitation for the ones who have hearts ready to hear and know the gospel and to desire to receive it and experience God's love through Jesus Christ. May we have eyes that see and perceive the greatness and the glory of God. May we have ears that hear and know the goodness of God and the gospel of our redemption. May we have hearts that respond to God's love through our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever has ears for the gospel of God this morning, let them hear. Amen. Now, Beverly, will you lead us in our actual offertory?